We good? Good morning, ladies. Oh, I'm a little ringy. Now that everybody else is quiet, I'm a little loud. I'm a little loud all the time. It has nothing to do with you guys. Uh, do you have any questions for me this morning? No questions. Oh, Diane has one. Yes. <laughs> I like the way you look at me like, which is a thought provoker. Yeah, what does it mean that we were raised up with Christ and that we are exalted with Christ? And I will, I will do my best to explain that I, in limited amount of time, obviously. Um, in, at the end of it, you're probably still going to be going... I don't really completely understand that because I'm not sure we can. I think it's one of those things that we can know is true because God's word says it's true. And it, 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 it does mean something that we can understand in part and it means something else that we can understand in part. But it means more than that. And I'll, I'll get to that and, and try to explain it. But I think when I get done explaining it, you're going to go, well, <laughs> that doesn't, yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things that we just go, wow, God, that's amazing. And I don't completely understand it. Any other questions? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day and this portion of Scripture, this amazing, wonderful, um, even unfathomable portion of Scripture where the lavishness of your love and your mercy and your grace is so apparent. We thank you for that this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I didn't quite get finished, and that happens pretty often, uh, but we will go back and look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. In our, oh, it's even talking to me. Hello. It's, this, is, this is like when my children go, no, no, no. Let's see if Angela can get it to, to work. There it is. So verse 13 begins with the words, and you also were included in Christ. And one of the questions I asked you, and I think one of the questions you had for me is, who are the we and who are the you? So to understand that, then let's go back to verse 11, which says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So when Paul is saying we, he means the original believers in Christ, including himself. I mean, he was a little bit later than uh, some of the others, but uh, that were almost exclusively Jewish. There were some Gentile believers, but, but the church was overwhelmingly Jewish in its beginning. So we who were the first to open Christ... We who are the first followers of Christ. But then he doesn't exclude the Gentiles. And then he turned, and most of his readers, his original recipients, would have been Gentiles. He turns to them and says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we were the first to hope in Christ, uh, were saved, but you also, you also, you Gentile believers, and, and this isn't just his original readers, I mean, this is no newsflash, the, the Christian church is overwhelmingly Gentile, and Paul addresses that 
in other letters. And so it's also uh, most believers since that time were also included. The salvation of both Jew and Gentile, something that would have been completely unfathomable before Christ. The salvation of both Jew and Gentile is something for which God is to be praised. It is to the praise of his glory that he has done that. And then he says, you also were saved and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. So he, he talks about the Holy Spirit as both a seal and a deposit. Before we get to that, though, I want to make sure we understand something, and that is that all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is something that happens at conversion, and the Holy Spirit is the one that guides us, leads us into truth, convicts us. There, there are lots of places where the New Testament talks about the purpose and the work of the Holy Spirit, but it is it is something that is given to all believers. It happens at conversion. It is not some separate event. So we all have, as followers of Christ, this Holy Spirit as a seal. In the ancient world, a seal um, was something that, that would mark like a letter or something else like that. And, and a seal um, guaranteed uh, ownership of something. It guaranteed authenticity. It demonstrated both authenticity and ownership. So if you received a letter with the seal, you could know for sure that the person who says they were sending it sent it. That was the guarantee. That was the, the seal of authenticity. Uh, that letter was authentically from the owner of that seal. But a seal also carried this idea of protection. Then, as now, people who owned animals would seal we would call it brand, their livestock. And that was a way, and it is still today, uh, you stole that calf because, you know what, that one's branded, that one's mine. And, and so it was, a, it was also uh, uh, used as a source of protection for animals. So then what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit residing within us is proof that we belong to God, that we are his, we are authentically his. And it is also his umbrella of protection over us. Nothing will come to us that has not first gone through him because we are his. Every mama in here understands what I just said. You going to go after my children? You better go through me first. We are all of us mama bears, are we not? And that can get pretty sticky at times, but that's not what this is about. <laughs> And then he also says the Holy Spirit is a deposit. And a deposit back then, it was very similar to what it is today. A deposit was a down payment guaranteeing that the balance would be paid later. So when we pay a deposit, we are essentially saying, I promise to pay you in full. This is, this is I'm putting a down payment that guarantees you will get the rest of it later. Uh, and so... In essence, what he's saying is that, that the Spirit is our guarantee that all the blessings that have been promised to us and that are now ours in part, the now part of the now and the yet, not yet, that are now ours in part will one day be ours completely. Um, in essence, God's Spirit is the first installment on our salvation guaranteeing our full and complete inheritance uh, that awaits us. And then at the end of this, these uh, couple of verses, uh, 
it, it says that this is to the praise of his glory. God's revelation as one who loves us so much that he would seal us as his own and he would give us the first installment on a salvation we don't even deserve is further proof that he is deserving of glory. And so it is all to the praise of his glory. And so Paul then now is going to turn and he is going to thank God. Oops, no. There it is. Uh, he's going to thank God. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And, and uh, letters often began with a thanksgiving, and this is a kind of a short thanksgiving that he's given, but, but he starts with these words, for this reason. Well, what is the reason? Well, in general, the reason is all of the blessings that he's just discussed in verses 3 through 14, that God has chosen them, that he's adopted them, that he's redeemed them, that all of this causes Paul to be thankful. In fact, those blessings from verse 3 to 14 of chapter 1 inform and influence not only this thanksgiving and the prayer he's about to pray, but the whole letter is just filled with these themes from verses 3 through 14 um, and Paul's gratitude. So all of verse 3 through 14 is, is the reason, but in particular, I believe he's thinking about verses 13 and 14 that we just read, that not only were Jews saved, but they too were included. I told you I spit sometimes. I just did. I, I feel so <laughs> sorry for the people in the front row. <laughs> I don't mean to. Um, that, that they too were included, um, that it was, it was not just Jews that were saved, but Gentiles included. God's plan of salvation is for people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and one day we will all worship before the throne. That is cause to praise God. What a wonderful, glorious plan he has. And so Paul says, I haven't stopped giving thanks. I give thanks continually. Now, he had some other things to do. He needed to make some tents, and he needed to pass along the gospel. And so what does that mean? I, I always give thanks. It's a Hebrew idiom, a Hebraism, as they would call it, for saying he regularly prayed for them. He regularly gave thanks to God for them. But what I want to point out to you is, remember, these are people he had never met. Many of them were people he had never met. I don't know about you, but most of my prayers are for me and my family and my friends. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, um, God has taught me so much about prayer. I'm by no means a prayer warrior, but he's taught me so much about prayer. And he's taught me a lot about spontaneous prayer. Facebook has taught me a lot about spontaneous prayer because people will put prayer requests on there and I'll tell them I'll pray for them. And so I decided, you know what, if I'm going to write that, I best do it. And so I'll stop right there. You know, and my thing's going bling, bling, bling. I'm like, I can't answer you right now. I'm praying. I told this person I pray for him. I've learned that when God brings someone to mind, whether it's at fa on Facebook or whether it's in the middle of the night, and, and this has happened to me. I don't sleep very well. And so uh, I pray a lot at night. And um, especially when my mother was caring for my dad when um, he had Alzheimer's. And God would wake me up in the middle of the night, and the first people I would think of was my parents, so I'd pray. And I cannot tell you how many times 
I'd say then the next morning, Mommy, was last night okay? And she'd go, oh, no. We had, a, we had a rough night. Oh, that's why. And so I've learned that when God brings someone to mind, that it's really crazy that this person I haven't thought of in six years just came to my mind. That must mean I'm supposed to pray. I've also learned when somebody is sharing with me and saying, hey, this is my struggle right now. And my sister taught me this, to say, can I pray for you right now? Whether that's on the phone or, or face-to-face. Um, and so... Paul, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with praying for those we love. It's just incomplete. Paul prayed for these believers. He regularly prayed for complete strangers, people he had never met. How would our world change if the church, and particularly the church in the West, began to pray for believers around the world that they do not know, especially those who live in difficult and dangerous places like Kenya and Syria and North Korea and China. How would that change the world? I believe the church is called to pray for those um, that they do not know in other parts of the world. So in verses 3 through 14, Paul has modeled for us worship. And now he's going to model for us prayer. And the content of his prayer is in verse, verses 17 through 19 and, and beyond, but this is the first part. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he says he prays to the, in this, the glorious Father, but it's actually more than that. More literally, it would be the Father of glory, because God is the source of all glory and all power. And so he is the Father of glory. Glory is one of those concepts that's very much informed um, by the Old Testament. And, and when you think of God's glory, that was, God's glory was what revealed him, what made him visible in a sense, even though you can't see God. You think of Moses saying, show me your glory, and God's like, it is too much for you to handle. You can't handle my glory. And so he passed, you know, he, he passed behind, or he, he passed uh, only his back before Moses. Or you think of the end of Exodus when God's presence comes to dwell in the temple, and it is so overwhelming just, you know, visually, auditorially, everything experientially, that the people are like, enough, enough, okay, we get it. Your power, they couldn't take it. And so God's glory is something that makes his presence or makes him visible. Um, and, and so that is what's informing Paul's sense here. So he is the father of glory also in the sense that he shows his glory. And in giving his spirit... God makes his character and his plan known. He makes them visible uh, in that sense. He displays his glory by making his character and his plan known. He makes his glory visible. So Paul has one, I know it looks like more than one, but Paul has one primary request in this prayer. And here's the primary request. He said, he's praying that through the Holy Spirit, they would receive revelation to know all that they have in Christ. That through God's Holy Spirit, 
they would receive revelation to know all that they have in Christ. Well, now, wait a minute, Amy, didn't you just say that we all have the Holy Spirit? Yes, they did already have the Holy Spirit because they were believers. So what is he praying for? He's praying for a continuing revelation, a growing understanding uh, of God's Spirit and the work that God's Spirit is doing. Why? Why did he want them to have this growing understanding? So they might know God better so that they might grow to know God better. We have a God, ladies, who has revealed himself to us. He has not remained aloof. He has not made himself unknowable. He has revealed himself to us, and he wants us to know him. That's amazing. The God of the universe. Now, we will never know God fully, this side of heaven, but we can know God really this side of heaven, and he wants us to. If there was ever an apologetic for in-depth Bible study where God has revealed himself in his word, this is it. In fact, I love what Klein Snodgrass says. He says, we seem more interested in trying to create emotional feeling than in providing an understanding of God and wisdom for living. As a result, many of the world say to Christians, your thinking is too superficial for the complexity of this world in which we live. A church should be a place for analysis, reflection, and reasoned discussion about the significance of the gospel. Christians should have the reputation as people who think. Uh, here at Brookside, we have a thing called the Brookside Institute, which is basically our name for adult education. That is the purpose of the Brookside Institute. And, and it, is, it is to create a people who are just as deep as they are wide. A lot of people who come to Brookside come to know Christ at Brookside. But then we want to make sure they become grounded in God's truth, that they really come to know the God who has revealed himself through his word and to know his truth. And so that's the purpose. And, and if ever there was an apologetic for it, this is it, that we would know God really no, God. So the result, and I know it doesn't look like that in this, um, but uh, the result, he says, I pray that the, heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That the result of us coming to know God is that we become enlightened, that the eyes of our heart are enlightened. Um, Paul prays that we will grow in wisdom and a revelation from the spirit, spirit, so in a sense, a light will go on inside of us. The light, you know, like in the cartoons where the light bulb, bing, that's what Paul wants. He wants the, the, the you know, theoretical light bulb to go on, bing, and we'll get it. We'll understand what God has done for us. Uh, and we'll understand what God, uh, we'll know God and understand all that he has done for us in Christ. And then he goes on to enumerate three things that he wants for his readers and, and for us. The first thing is that they will know the hope to which they and we have been called. That they would know the hope to which they have been called. Knowing, uh, what he wants them to know is our calling, uh, what our calling means for our future. He wants us to know what our calling means for our future. And knowing the future hope we have in Christ impacts the way we live now. In, sense, in a sense, we begin to live in light of eternity. We don't live for just the here and now. We understand that we have a future and a hope. 
an eternal hope. And that eternal hope in Christ is real. It's a very real thing. And so Paul wants his readers to understand that. And he wants it to impact the way they live. That hope that we have in Christ, I believe, is an antidote for a culture, our culture, that has come increasingly hopeless and increasingly believing that life is meaningless. The hope of Christ is the answer, the only answer for that. Um, the second thing he wants them to know is the, and this is a more literal translation, I love this, the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, a lot of people think that means our future hope, our inheritance. No, does it say the wealth of the glory of our inheritance? No, it does not. It says the wealth of the glory of his, God's inheritance in the saints. So it's not our inheritance, it's God's inheritance. What does God inherit? Us. His inheritance is the saints. We are, we are God's inheritance. Think about that for a minute. How crazy is that? That's amazing. We are his treasured possession. That's how much he loves us. One day he will fully redeem us just because he digs us so much. He loves us that much. So Paul wants his readers to comprehend the extraordinary value God has placed on us that he would say we are his inheritance. He wants us to know how very much we are loved. My mother used to tell me when I was growing up that I would never know how much I was loved until I had children of my own. She was right. Uh, and oftentimes, I'll say to Katie, uh, in particular, this is true of my sons too, but she's the one that talks the most. <laughs> I'll say, I love you. And she'll say, I love you more. And I'll say, oh no, sweetie, you can't. Someday, my children will understand how much they are loved. God loves us in a way that we can't even understand. He loves us so much. And Paul wants his readers and us and all believers to understand and experience that love. He also wants us to understand and experience God's power. So the third thing he says that he want, prays for believers is that we would know and understand God's incomparably great power for us. Uh, that life-giving power that God has that is ours as well. Uh, that is available to us. And then he goes on in verses 19 through 23, the second part of 19, to talk about the extent of that power. That power is, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the he heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So 
this life-giving power, this power that is available for us, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. Man, that's power. And it is available to us. When Paul is talking about Christ being raised to God's right hand, he is quoting from uh, a psalm that came to be a messianic psalm or, or was a messianic psalm, was realized to be a messianic psalm uh, later. And he's quoting from Psalm 110.1. Those of you who are in Hebrews might recognize this. The Lord says to my Lord, God says to Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is, in fact, the single most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Hebrews quotes it several times, actually. And Paul is alluding to it here. And, and when, when to sit at someone's right hand, anyone's right hand, was an honor. So to say that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God is saying that he has power and he has authority and he has victory and he has favor because he sits at God's right hand. So um, then he says that he says again these words um, that he is seated at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Uh, he uses that expression again. And, and that points, it does point to Jesus' presence with God because he is right now seated at God's right hand. But it also points, as I said last week, to this larger reality of life. That is more, there is more to this life than just this world. This world is not all there is. There is a greater, larger spiritual reality that exists that Paul's about to talk about. Um, the, I like the way one theologian put it. He says, life's center of gravity is not earthly life. It is in the hem heavenly realm with Christ and God. That is the center of life's gravity. So then he goes on after talking about this greater spiritual reality to talk about um, spiritual powers, meaning evil powers, po uh, evil powers, uh, Satan and, and his minions. Uh, and this is a concern throughout the letter. You're probably familiar with Ephesians 6, where it talks about put on the full armor of God. Uh, and so this is very appropriate, particularly for the people in and around Ephesus, because Ephesus was a hotbed not just of pagan worship, but also astrology and the worship of, of spiritual powers, just in general. And they lived in fear of that and were persecuted because they didn't worship that. They worshiped the one true God. So this worship of spiritual powers was very much a focus in Ephesus and around Ephesus, and so it is also a focus in this letter of, of Ephesians. But I want you to notice that here and everywhere else that Paul talks about evil powers, he doesn't spend much time on it. He doesn't dwell on it. He has no desire uh, to talk about that. He doesn't name them. He just says, whatever's out there. Uh, he, has, he doesn't name them. He doesn't talk about them. He doesn't give specifics. He wants them to know one thing. Whatever power is out there has already been subjected to Christ. He has already defeated them. That's the only thing you really need to know. They have no power over you because they have been defeated. Doesn't mean they can't mess with your life a little bit, <laughs> but ultimately 
they have no power over you. I love even that uh, Paul says um, every name that is invoked, almost as if he's saying, you know, whether it's real, whether it's imagined, whether no matter what it is, whatever's out there, it's already all been defeated. It's already subject to Christ, which reminds me, because I'm old and I've been a Christian a long time, uh, of an old Larry Norman song. Anybody even in the room ever heard the name Larry Norman? Anybody? Oh, my goodness. Okay, Shirley, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, people are going. <laughs> I say Donny Osmond, and people go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Larry Norman, uh, you are listening to Christian music today, contemporary Christian music, because of Larry Norman, God rest his soul. He, he was basically kicked out of churches because you can't mix rock and roll and Christian music. Yes, you can, said Larry Norman. And he had a song called UFO. Uh, and this, this is one of the lines. He says, if there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that he must know, and he's been there once already and died to save their souls. I don't necessarily believe, I don't believe that there's life on other planets, but I do know that whatever's out there has already been defeated by Jesus Christ, whatever evil power may be out there. And then Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the church. Um, and this is an important uh, uh, subject in Ephesians, that he is the head of the church for the benefit of the church. And he is Lord, Jesus is Lord over all things. And he explains that in verse 23, which is kind of complicated, he says, um, the church, he is head of, over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels, fills everything in every way. Now, that's kind of a confusing translation, and it's kind of a confusing verse. And, and, and this idea of fullness can have a variety of meanings. And in this particular situation, it probably has a sense of, full, of, full, of completeness, excuse me, a sense of completeness and is likely an allusion to God's presence, um, talking about God's presence. And so the general meaning of the verse, the way I would uh, sort of not translate it, but just paraphrase the verse, is that the fullness of God, the presence of God, dwells in Christ. And Christ dwells in us. And so therefore, we are able to experience divine fullness or completeness or presence. In other words, we're able to experience God through Christ because the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Does that make sense? So then we move on to um, Ephesians 2, the first three verses, and, and Paul is going to paint this picture of who we once were and who we are now. This is the first of several formerly now statements in Ephesians, where Paul says, this is who you used to be before Jesus, and that's a good thing to remember. And here's who you are now because of Jesus. And so this is what he says. This is the, this is the before picture. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are now dis or who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, or your um, version probably says objects of wrath. So before Christ, we were separated 
from God. The picture that Paul paints is one of separation from God. And as we lived in that state, we had three determinative influences, three things that influenced who we were and what we did. The first is the world or the culture around us, the godless culture around us. The second was Satan. And the third was our own desires, or flesh, as Paul puts it here. We see this all over our culture, don't we? The way even we can become influenced by the culture. I think of the commercials uh, that we see. The one that really bothers me is one, I think it's a Lexus commercial, and it's a guy getting out of bed. And it says, you step out of your luxury bed from your luxury sheets and step into your luxury shower and wash with your luxury uh, soap, go down to your luxury kitchen and make your luxury coffee and put in some luxury sugar and step out of your luxury house into your luxury car, which makes everything else seem ordinary. Yeah, that's our culture. That's what we value. He who dies with the most toys wins. I've got news for you. He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) And he can't take them with you. Uh, So he still dies. Uh, I, I was, we were watching football, which really, truly, you got to turn off the commercials <laughs> when you watch football. And I was looking at the fall lineup and the names, just the names for the show. I haven't seen one of these shows, okay? But I can tell you that they all have the same plot. Revenge, obsession, mistresses, betrayal. Here's the plot. We just want more sex on TV. That's the plot. Uh, for those commercials or for those, for, for those TV shows. We are influenced uh, and were influenced before Christ and have to be wary of being influenced now by our culture and by Satan and by our own desires. And he says, in which you used to live. That word for live is actually walk. In which you used to walk. You walked among them. You walked with them. What is being described here is a way of life a way of walking, a way of living. We lived in our sins and transgressions. We don't live in that anymore. And what Paul is saying is that we will either live in the sphere of sin or we will live in the sphere of Jesus Christ. And then Paul tells us you were by nature objects of wrath deserving of wrath. By our very nature, we are sinful. Spend a little time on Sunday with a couple of three-year-old girls. If you walk away from a couple of three-year-old girls not knowing that we have a sin nature, those are some unusual three-year-old girls. Um, Because we are by nature sinful and we are therefore under God's wrath. Now, this concept of God's wrath makes us kind of queasy, doesn't it? This thought of this loving God as being angry is like, whoa, you know what? His wrath is an expression of his love. Let me explain that a little bit. But first, let me tell you a couple of things about God's anger. First of all, God's anger is thoroughly and completely righteous. He is not some angry parent reaching into the back seat to slap whichever kid the hand finds first, okay? That is not a picture of, and my mama's arm was like, you know, 10 feet long when we were Miss Babe, and she could get the back of the station wagon with that arm. 
don't know how she did that. But, but that's not a picture of God's anger. He is thoroughly righteous. His anger is thoroughly righteous. And he is not so much angry at us as he is angry at sin and all that it causes the destruction that it causes. Ladies, there is no such thing as a victimless sin, even if I'm the only victim. There is no such thing. Sin always produces destruction. We don't have to go very far. Just go back a few weeks. And the death of a 33-year-old West Omaha mother on her way home late from work. And some guy decided to kill her just because he could, just because he wanted to. Shot her, left her for dead. His uncle apparently drove off in her car and ate her dinner she bought at McDonald's on his way. If that doesn't get some, get some anger in you, something's wrong. That's a righteous anger. I will never, ever forget, and I know I've talked about this for, before, my first time at Royal Family Kids Camp with kids who had been abused and neglected, looking into the eyes of a little eight-year-old girl and realizing somebody hurt this baby or she wouldn't be here and an anger welled up inside of me that's a glimpse of righteous anger an anger that longs to bring justice real justice to this sin sick world God's wrath is actually an expression of his love so this is a bleak picture that Paul has painted for us we were dead Dead, not just sick, but dead in our sins and transgression. And we were the living dead trying to push God out of the picture. The glorious thing about Ephesians, and particularly Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that God refused to remain out of the picture. Verses 4 through 7 say this, but... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. I feel like we could just go home right now. What an expression of God's mercy. Look at the expansive language for us. God's great love for us. He's rich in mercy. He made us alive in Christ. He, he uh, is the incomparable riches of his grace. What beautiful language and truth that expresses. What Paul is telling us, ladies, is that apart from the mercy of God, we have no hope. There is no hope for us. It does not exist. But God didn't leave us for dead. But God made us alive in Christ. And it is something that only God can do. We can do nothing to save ourselves. He gets so excited about it that he throws in a, it was by grace you were saved before he even gets to that point. I heard a word picture recently. It says, have you ever seen a dead man do anything to help himself be resuscitated? <laughs> He's lying on the ground. He's not lying there going, clear, no. 
He's not. There's nothing he can do for himself. He has to be made alive. That is a picture of us. God made us alive in Christ. But he did more than that. He raised us up with Christ. This is a really complicated thing to understand. It is an expression of our union with Christ, which is so much of what Ephesians is about. And the point, the basic point is that when God raised and exalted Christ, he also raised and exalted us. Which, and, and in other um, book letters, by the way, Paul says we died with Christ too. That when Christ died, we died. When Christ was raised, we were raised. When Christ was exalted, we were exalted. And there's a now part of that, which, which means that our problem was spiritual death, and the answer is spiritual resurrection. And that's true. There's a now part of that that means that in the sense that we are exalted, that our resurrection and our, our new life brings with it privilege and honor and security and responsibility. And that's true too. But it means more than that. To say we've been raised and exalted with Christ means more than that. There's a someday part of it, which someday we will be raised. We will actually physically be raised and given new bodies. Someday. And that is true. And we will be with Christ in heaven and we will have complete victory over evil powers that Christ has won someday. But this means more than that too. In some sense that we cannot completely understand, when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ was raised, we were raised with him. When Christ was exalted, we were exalted with him. And even if, even if we can't completely understand that, it is something for which we should praise God. And then he uses this idea of in the heavenly realms again. Uh, and, and Christ is seated in heaven. We are not yet. Uh, but again, he's talking about this greater spiritual reality uh, where God is uh, and, and uh, his, of God and his work in Christ. So essentially what Paul is talking about here is we have changed spheres. We are no longer in the sphere of sin and death. We have been brought out of the sphere of this world, the sphere of sin and death. And we have been brought into the sphere of Christ. The heavenly spiritual reality. Jesus himself said this in John 5, 24. He said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. He has crossed over from death to life. So what's the purpose of all this? The purpose is that to demonstrate in the coming ages the richness of God's grace. The richness of God's grace toward us, all he has done is something about which we will marvel for all eternity. And we're not the only ones who are mar will marvel at that. That's hard to say, will marvel. Uh, 1 Peter 1.12, in 1 Peter 1.12 where Peter's talking about salvation, of human beings, he says, even angels uh, long to look into these things. Even the angels are up there going, dude, do you see what he did for those people? They're nasty, and look how much you, how can they love them? Even angels marvel at God's plan of salvation. 
Well, let's finish up here with verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace alone. Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. If it could could be earned, it would no longer be grace. It would be a wage. It would be payment. But it cannot be earned. It is by grace we have been saved. Through faith. Now, that doesn't mean we're saved by faith. Um, We are saved by grace alone. Faith is only the means by which that grace is received. And faith itself is more than agreement agreement with a set of ideas. It is an active trust, a confidence based on a relationship. To have faith in Christ says nothing about me. It says everything about God, that we have a trustworthy God who has saved us by his grace. So faith... um, is nothing less, or excuse me, anything less than a life-changing, trusting relationship with God in Christ is not really faith. If you don't believe that, stay with me and study James in the spring because James talks about that a lot. Now, there is another possible interpretation. That word for faith can also mean, same word, depending on the context, can mean faithfulness. And so what Paul may be saying, we are saved by grace through the faithfulness of Christ. And that could very well be what he's saying. Not through our faith, but through the faithfulness of Christ, his unflinching obedience to his Father in dying for us. Now, what is the antecedent of this? Your English question for the week. It could be faith. It could be that the faith is not from ourselves. But that's not as grammatically likely as Paul is saying the whole thing. So there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That Our salvation from beginning to end and in between is the work of God. It is not our work at all in any way, shape, or form. I grew up a military kid, and there were some kids. My father used to tell us, uh, you did not earn your father's rank. Your father earned your father's rank, so get off your high horse. But there were kids whose parents didn't say that to them and they wore their father's rank. How ridiculous is that? Well, my daddy is, well, what'd you do to earn that? They did nothing to earn it, so they could not boast about it or should not boast about it. And Paul says, you've done nothing to earn this. What do you got to boast about? It's not of you in the first place. So our salvation is not by works, but it is surely for works. We are created in Christ for works to live a life that is honoring to God. We are created to do his will, the will he purposed before the foundation of the world. The purpose of walking in a way that honors and pleases God. Because we no longer live in sin, because we now live in Christ, our lives should reflect that reality. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. 
For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, to, oh, well, I thought I knew it, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ladies, the whole of our lives, uh, may the whole of our lives reflect the truth that God, in his love and mercy, has saved us and raised us from death to life. Let us walk in that newness of life to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done in Christ uh, for us on our behalf, that you loved us that much. We could never thank you enough. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, ladies. See you next week.